Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right too with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19 ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for ten dollars. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just ten dollars. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our Spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through four seventeen while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details. U.S. only. This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Forbes interview. Today, I'm excited to have Adam Braun with us, who is a social entrepreneur, a best-selling author, and he's about to launch a new startup that is going to revolutionize, or at least try, the whole college experience. Adam, uh, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Steve. So let's start off with, I want a little bit of your background. You are from the Northeast. You went to Brown. You were on the track to be uh, a hedge fund or iBanker kind of guy. And then you started to travel the world and you took a different path and you ended up building, what, 300 schools in uh, across the world? Actually, now just 400. We just crossed uh, 400 schools built globally through Pencils of Promise uh, this March. So tell me this story. I mean, it's a, a lot of people know it, but a lot of people don't. And I love this uh, the origin of, of Pencils of Promise, which was your your first nonprofit. Right, right. So, I mean, for anyone who's, who's not familiar with my story or the story of the organization, you know, it really began when I was in college. And as, as you alluded to, Steve, I was, I was really on a path to go work in, in banking and, and finance. And that was kind of all, all of my early formative experiences. And then I went on semester at sea when I was in college. And, you know, a bunch of things happened on that trip that really changed the way that I looked at the world. But the one that probably most directly led to the founding of the organization was that uh, in each country that we went through, I had a habit of asking one child um, per country if they could have anything in the world, what would they want most? And I, I'd kind of find a random kid somewhere, you know, in my experience in that country, and then I'd have them write down their answer on a piece of paper. And I kind of figured that I'd have this collage of global interests of children, uh, you know, on a map when I got home. And what were the typical answers as you kind of journeyed across? I mean, they were so much more fascinating than I expected. You know, I thought it was going to be, you know, some big kind of fancy physical item, but um, you know, one of, probably my favorite answer was in Hong Kong, where a boy said magic. Um, <laughs> you know, in China, a girl said a book. And, um, you know, in, in uh, Vietnam, a, a girl said uh, she wished that her uh, mother could walk her to school every single day because her mother was sick. So, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of simplicity, but inherent wisdom in these responses. But uh, when I was in India, where, you know, you just see um, poverty that affects children in such a stark way that it's tough to almost reconcile. And, and you kind of wonder, how can I be helpful here? And uh, so I asked a street beggar, this, this young boy is probably eight or nine years old. I said, if you could have anything in the world, what would you want most? And his answer was a pencil. And so I had a pencil with me. I gave it to him. And, and I just kind of watched this, this excitement wash over him once he, he had this possession. And, you know, I've, I've, I relatively recently learned that uh, the average pencil holds 40,000 words. And it was such a kind of beautiful symbol for, for his desire. <laughs> who, who, who did that study? Uh, I, I, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it probably took them a long time to, to, to figure that out. Um, or maybe they just, you know, looked at how many words went into like a centimeter and then they uh, did kind of extrapolate it out. But 
you know, to make a long story short, I mean, I learned this boy hadn't ever gone to school before and that that was the reality for millions of children. And as I continued to travel through the developing world as a backpacker, I was carried pens and pencils with me. And, you know, they opened up avenues for conversations with parents, with siblings, with elders. And it always came back to the desire for um, the opportunity to self-educate. And eventually that that really inspired the name Pencils of Promise for the organization that you know, I founded in, in 2008 when I was working at Bain at the time on, on the side of my job in hopes of building one school to honor my grandmother, who's a Holocaust survivor, um, on her 80th birthday. And, you know, as of today, wow. that's that's now over 400 schools around the world. And here I was thinking that um, Spencer's Sea was just one big booze cruise for college kids. <laughs> you know, I, I, that's, that was my perception. Um, I think they made a really big branding mistake by having uh, road rules. Uh, remember like MTV Real World and Road oh, yeah. Rolls? They did Road Rolls in like 98 or something like that on Semester at Sea. And suddenly it was just seen as this party ship. And truthfully, you know, there's there's more than 500 students that go on the voyage every semester. And, you know, there's a subsection of them that are just there to party. But increasingly, you know, I found that the, the majority of students were there to really try and see as much of the world as possible. And I don't know of anybody that's come back from that trip without, you know, going through some type of really major personal transformation in a positive way. Yeah, you had you had a few too many beers. You ended up founding 400 schools, man. That's that's tough. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, no, uh, no harm done there. So I feel like a lot of people are doing, you know, they're they're doing jobs, highly ambitious jobs, but maybe unfulfilled. How did you go across working at Bain, which to me sounds like a full time job and a half and then start an organization yeah. on the side? And did you have any skills you learned at Bain that helped you do that? Oh yeah, I mean Bain. Bain was the foundation. For, and what side were you, you know, on? Really, were you on the consulting side or the investing side? Or? Yes. Okay. I was on the consulting side. Um, you know, eighty percent they say of, of Bain capital uh, hires come from Bain Consulting, so it's almost kind of a feeder program. Okay. And and you know, I I initially thought I was going to go towards private equity uh, after two years at Bain, but you know, obviously Pencil of Promise um, kind of entered my life first, and and then I decided to pursue that. But Bain has what they call an externship program, mm-hmm. where in your third year. Uh, you're able to leave and work for any company um, for six months and come back. So, you know, most people uh, use that to go work at either a portfolio company that they're interested in that, that Bain's often working with, um, you know, kind of hedge fund or, or private equity. Mm-hmm. And, and nowadays, I, I think most um, or at least a lot of uh, the Bain, you know, kind of class wants to go work at startups because obviously that's a super interesting space. So you have this kind of six month period in which you could try something else out. And, you know, when I started the organization, this was late 2008. And so the economy was obviously suffering pretty yeah. drastically. I was in the New York office. You know, most of my friends at other companies were losing their jobs. And, you know, Bain made the decision that they weren't going to let anybody go from my class of 25 because, frankly, most people were really strong. And so they said, look, um, you know, we don't want to have to let anybody go. But if any of you want to take off nine months instead of six, feel free to do that. Um, and you'll still have your job at the end of those nine okay. months. And so I said, where do I sign? (laughs) I'll I'll, uh, because because I had already um, gotten approval to, you know, kind of start the path towards creating Pencils of Promise. You know, I pitched them on doing something entrepreneurial and they said, you know, you can't go um, start this with your externship. It has to be in existence. You have to go work for a real organization. And I said, okay, um, I want to go on externship in in about five months. um, And, uh, you know, I'm going to get this off the ground in the next five months. And it was formalized and we had done some fundraisers, and then I spent nine months um, really in the field and, and growing the movement across the country. How do you start a movement? Like, how do you st- like? You had no background in education, and yet you're going to start these schools in some really difficult places, facing many odds. Like, what is step one when you decide, like, okay, I'm going to do this thing? I think step one is to acknowledge um, that you don't have to reinvent the wheel, and that there are many other people who 
have probably tried to tackle the problem that you're, you know, trying to tackle and done, you know, really meaningful work and try and learn from them through, you know, osmosis and partnership. And so step one for me was, you know, reaching out to anybody and everybody that I could find that had done either some form of education or, you know, NGO type work in Laos, which is the country I wanted to start in, one of the poorest okay. countries in, in Southeast Asia. And the other one, Myanmar, uh, was politically, you know, kind of on lockdown, so you couldn't even get in. Um, I so I reached out to anybody and everybody that I could, and I was fortunate to find an organization that kind of helped me get my foot in the door. They introduced me to the education ministry. They took me around to some local villages and kind of really helped me establish somewhat of a foothold in the country. And, you know, the other thing is, although I wasn't, you know, a teacher or, you know, an educator, I had spent at that point probably four or five years working with um, really great NGOs that I had um, mm-hmm. spent time with while backpacking and I was fundraising for them. I was spending time with them in the field. And so, you know, I was learning from great leaders and, and then applying those, um, you know, lessons learned to the work of Pencil of Promise. And how did you scale from that first thing in, in, in Laos to, like you said, 400 schools, which is incredible? You know, I, I think any entrepreneur has to make a, a series of almost calculated bets on where they think the world is going to go and try and position your organization or company um, you know, ahead of that trend. And, you know, whether it, you are right or not, oftentimes is kind of the life or death of your company or organization. And so, you know, back in early 2008 or late 2008, early 2009, you know, I, I made really, I would say two, you know, probably three calculated bets. The first was that um, while many people are passionate about certain causes, the one thing that I saw lacking most was for-profit business acumen in the nonprofit sector. And, you know, I'd always been trained on, on building businesses but I had this experience as a backpacker that allowed me to be super comfortable and actually love being in remote villages. And so I was kind of the blend of like half consultant, you know, finance guy and half, you know, rural backpacker. And so I thought if I could bring for-profit business acumen to the fore and run this like a really tight company, um, that would really appeal to both kind of internal staff and talent recruitment, as well as prospective donors. Um, the second kind of calculated bet was that uh, if you focused on community building via social media, that you know social media was going to become a big part of the fabric of everyday life, and in particular, mm-hmm. businesses would look to those with large social media followings to you know kind of market their their products and services. And then the third was the rise of cost marketing. You know, back in 08, companies were not spending millions of dollars um, on nonprofit partnerships to reach their consumers. Mm-hmm. But you, you know, in my mind, I, I kind of thought that that was the future. And so we built a large social media following. We focused on community engagement. Um, we focused on grassroots, you know, kind of movement building by, you know, I, I literally got in an RV and I drove across the country for a month with four of my best friends speaking at colleges. And what, you know, evolved was this really large social media following, this really engaged um, kind of grassroots movement. And then eventually, you know, the kind of foundational side, as well as the mid to high net worth donors uh, came in droves because they saw that we had really established a great foundation and we were run with um, really sound business principles. You mentioned the social media and you guys have a great footprint and you know great word of mouth. And I also know that you're very tight with people in the tech community, entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs. Yeah. Was that established beforehand through through your experience in business or did that kind of build organically as you got going with Pencils of Promise? Uh, it, it's definitely the latter. I mean, you know, in, in 2010, early 2010, Bain, you know, gave me a choice because I had by then returned from my externship and I was supposed to be working on, our, you know, a portfolio company that they had assigned me to work on. And we had a second school underway and I really wanted to work on that second school. And so, you know, they, they said, look, you got to make a decision here. And so I decided to leave um, in about March of 2010 uh, when we had literally one school and, you know, no office and no full time staff to, to pursue the organization. 
And, um, you know, I remember going to Summit Series in D.C. back in 2010, and I had never been to, you know, really a conference of any kind. Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't have any friends that were, you know, entrepreneurs at the level of people that I was meeting at, at Summit. And it really kind of introduced me to this new community. And what I found was that, you know, in the subsequent years, um, you know, most people, I think, in kind of the nonprofit world spend a lot of time at nonprofit conferences. And I felt like that was just really preaching to the choir. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't ever consider myself a nonprofit entrepreneur. I was just an entrepreneur who was building, you know, in my mind, you know, a business that happened to be a 501c3 in tax structure. Um, and so because of that, uh, when I was going to events and, and oftentimes I was much more interested in trying to get, you know, on stage. And fortunately, a lot of people were interested in the story and they'd ask me to come and speak at their events. I was always really the only nonprofit speaker at events. And that's that's what I wanted to target. You know, the people in that audience are those that you know are running businesses that can build partnerships with us. They can become really great donors. They can help us advance our work. And so, you know, oftentimes there is a speaker's dinner at the end of the night or after I get off stage, someone would come up to me and say, look, you know, I'd love for my company to become supportive of, of yours. And I would say a lot of very you know, real and authentic friendships evolved with people that were either entrepreneurs or VCs because mm -hmm. I was spending time at, uh, you know, a lot of events, you know, like you and I spent time together at, at you know, a handful of events that were not nonprofit yeah. events. They were just business events. And that's where, you know, I was more interested, um, even though I was running a nonprofit. And, you know, me making that that network and making those friendships is, you know, important for business or philanthropy or just social life as well. What Definitely. what did, um, you know, those connections to those big entrepreneurs and VCs, um, how did that um, affect how you run your company and how you grew? Uh, in very meaningful ways. I mean, I think, first of all, you know, some of them became, you know, really meaningful donors. Some of them became board members of the organization uh, or advisory board members. And so, you know, from a financial perspective, they, they helped us, you know, kind of get the fuel to, to drive the, the vehicle further and faster. Uh, you know, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, as an example, uh, you know, Gary doesn't sit on any nonprofit boards, but he's on the board of Pencil of Promise. He shows up and and he's there for you know two three hours deeply engaged in our board meetings because you know of the relationship that was established on a personal level. But you know at the same time when we do our annual gala, you know he's uh, offered you know various items that have driven you know huge capital gains for for the um, not capital gains in a tax sense, but you know actual capital um, yes. into into the company. <laughs> Um, but then we've also established great partnerships. I mean, an example would be Dan Rosenzweig at Chegg or, you know, Chip mm -hmm. Posick at, at 2U. I mean, these are both, you know, two of the leading uh, venture-backed education companies really in the country. And at the same time, when they establish philanthropic partnerships, you know, Pencils of Promise is, is the recipient of that. I mean, Common Bond, you know, the one of the leaders in the student um, loan and refinancing space, you know, they have a social promise. And, and that evolved out of a relationship that um, David Klein, their, their founder and CEO, and I developed and, and was really led by him reaching out and saying, you know, I've learned about Pencils of Promise through business school when he was at Wharton. You know, we want to have a social promise where every time we issue a student loan um, to, you know, one of our students, we're going to match that with a scholarship through Pencils of Promise. And now, you know, mm -hmm. that's six figures every year that they're contributing into the organization. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. Whoa. I've just been introduced to Upside.com, and it sounds like a great way for business people to travel. Here's what sounds cool about it. At Upside, you save money on travel and you get a free Amazon gift card worth $100, $200, even $300 every time. So you get savings 
and a big gift card. Free. But you're skeptical. I get it. But here's how they do it. Upside bundles your flights and hotel together for one low price. Bundling saves a ton of money, especially on business travel. So they give you an Amazon gift card. Your company saves money and you still keep all your miles. And right now, when you use the code Forbes, you're guaranteed a free $200 Amazon gift card your first time. That's money. Wait, I'm going to say that again. The code Forbes gets you a guaranteed $200 Amazon gift card. How do you not do it? Upside, save big on travel and get a big gift card every time. Upside.com. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. Hi, I'm Clay Smith, host of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the podcast for book lovers interested in interviews with best-selling authors, insider scoop on the hottest releases, reading ideas for book clubs and bibliophiles, and even tips about which books to skip altogether. So be sure to download new episodes of Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews every Tuesday. You can get it on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. The Forbes Interview Podcast is brought to you by WordPress.com. WordPress powers 27% of all websites. Get 15% off your new website today at WordPress.com slash Forbes. One more time. That's 15% off at WordPress.com slash Forbes. Were you always into philanthropy? Was there a kind of a family history of this? Was this something that you learned uh, learned about when you were traveling abroad? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was really the... You know, one of the several, I would say, foundations of, of the values that I was raised with. I mean, you know, my, my very first memory in life is um, is the second night of Hanukkah. And I remember being, you know, excited to get my, whatever little toy I was going to get. And my parents said, you don't get a toy tonight. Uh, instead, you know, you pick a charity and we're going to make a contribution in your name to that um, organization. Instead of buying you a gift, you know, we're going to give twenty five dollars to whatever that was. And, you know, that's always how we did Hanukkah was, you know, there were one night of gifts and then the next night you contributed to a cause. Um, and that's still the tradition in my family is four nights of, of you know, gifts. And that's what would all, you know, I'll still with my children. I'm sure my siblings will with theirs. And mm-hmm. and it was like rooted in just how we operate as a family. We were always taking in, you know, different families or, or family members that were in rough situations. Um, you know, I've had literally dozens and dozens of kids, you know, spend weekends at, at our house growing up as a kid that were in, you know, just different tough situations. And so this this idea of, you know, you, you try and give back and support those given, you know, the ability for you to do so was just something that we were raised with. And so I, I think that as I started to travel through the developing world and I saw just how, you know, kind of destitute some of these situations were, I felt like, wow, you know, this is maybe my ability to, to make a mark. That's great. Yeah, in my family, our second day of Christmas, we just drink too much whiskey and, and then argue with each other. <laughs> that sounds like fun too. It, it has its ups and downs. And, and speaking of family, you come, you're, you have a very interesting family. Your brother, for people who don't know, is the music mobile Scooter Braun who uh, helped uh, find and promote Justin Bieber and others. Is there something you think that made your family unique in terms of raising these entrepreneurial kind of risk-taking kids? I, I think they instilled in us a, a sense of um, kind of expectation that we had to use um, our lives as, as an instrument to do something special. Um, and I think a lot of that drew from the fact that both of my dad's parents were Holocaust survivors and they lost their entire families in the war, you know, siblings, parents, all of them perished in the concentration camps. And so there was this sense of um, appreciation for the life that we that we had and almost an expectation that we had to you know, honor um, the sacrifice and the uniqueness 
of the survival of our grandparents and do something really special with our lives and not kind of just take that for granted. You know, my, my mother also, um, you know, her father passed away when she was quite young. She was raised by, you know, a single mother who had to also overcome tremendous hardship. And so, you know, we were just kind of raised with this, this kind of set of expectations that, you know, mediocrity was not okay. And so, you know, when you have that as a motivation and then it's kind of grounded in, in a sense of integrity, which is also something that I think my, my mother has always really stood for, um, it can lead to some special things. And, and fortunately, I think that's, you know, manifested across, um, you know, all, all of us. I mean, I, have, uh, you know, older brother, younger sister and, and two brothers that we took in from Mozambique when I was in high school. And, you know, we, we, we couldn't oh, wow. be prouder of, of, you know, the whole family. You know, you did something far from mediocre. You started Pencils for Promise. You know, you're a best-selling author. You started 400 schools now. But then you decided to shift gears again and walk away from the day-to-day of, of what you built. Um, take me through that. Like, what was your thought process and what made you kind of pull the trigger to say, you know, this thing is humming. Now I'm going to do another challenge. Well, I think the big thing was that, you know, my, my title at Pencil of Promise was founder and CEO. But, you know, as any company or organization grows, uh, th- those can sometimes become two very different jobs. And, you know, Pensa Promise has over 100 staff in five countries. And, you know, as we've talked about, 400 schools, about 35,000 students. And when you get to that size and scale, your your job becomes very different. And, you know, what I'm motivated by, what I love is is really the alchemy of that startup phase. And, you know, one, it felt like um, the organization was at a place where, you know, I could certainly still be a really valued, valuable contributor. But I started to, you know, kind of question um, is there something that I could, you know, work on that could also have, you know, either the same or even an outsized impact more so than Pencils of Promise um, that could, you know, kind of create the same type of potentially, you know, ripple effect, but in a different sector. And, you know, also one thing that was just, you know, kind of clear to me, as, as I've alluded to, is, you know, I feel this tremendous um you know, kind of desire to to use my life as an instrument of, of service and impact. And um you know, after almost eight years of Pencil Promise, uh, there was one thing that was really nagging at me, which is that, um, you know, I kept on getting asked this question about, um, it's really great what you're doing internationally, but what about all the problems here at home? You know, what about all the challenges Mm -hmm. of of our U.S. education system? And I I just didn't have a good answer because I wasn't working on it. And I started to think about, well, you know, is this deeply personal for me? And historically, it hadn't been. But, um, you know, I met my wife, five, six years ago. And when we met, she, you know, explained to me her story. And that was that she grew up in, you know, a a loving family, but one without, you know, really, you know, financial means. And in order to get out of that situation, she bought into the promise of college, which is what we've, you know, kind of sold decades of American youth on is that college is the path to the American dream. And it's going to help you Mm -hmm. so much to get, you know, that great job and that great life ahead. And um, she went to college for two and a half years. And in those two and a half years, uh, racked up so much debt, and it was so hard for her to justify continuing to take on more of that financial hardship um, that she left school early and entered the workforce directly. And you know, in um, that that decision, uh, she thought that was the right path for her. But when we met, you know, several years later, she still had one hundred ten thousand dollars of student debt and no bachelor's degree. And you know, I encouraged her to, to declare bankruptcy and at least you know be absolved and, and be able to start fresh and. That's when she told me that student debt is the only debt in the United States that you can't declare bankruptcy on, which I had no idea about. Um, and as soon as I heard that, it just seemed like such a fundamental injustice. And, you know, as as you probably um, have experienced yourself, Steve, I mean, as, as an employer, as somebody who hires people, you know, the value of the transcript of where you went, you know, what, what you experienced in college is diminishing um, because we have so much data on on an individual and kind of 
the disconnectedness between the way that college is preparing people for the workforce was becoming larger and larger. The cost was spiraling to a place where it's totally out of control. And it seemed like college, which was supposed to be the one thing that, you know, kind of decreased the the gap between the haves and haves nots was increasing that gap. And so I wanted to do something about it. And that's now manifested into a mission. You and then your poor wife made the mistake of marrying a nonprofit guy. So now you're really in debt <laughs> for the listeners out there. Adam and I are in the good position that both of our wives are way out of our league. So we're, we're very, we're very lucky in, in that sense. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Did you have this idea when you left Pencils of Promise? Because I remember we met a few years ago when you were, you were about to transition out, but I don't think you had a clear idea. Did you kind of do a little time of soul searching or did you have an overlap in ideas when you decided to downshift a little bit from Pencils of Promise? You know, I, I knew that I wanted to work on the challenges of higher education. I didn't know what form it would take. Um, I, it was just so clear to me that the system was was broken and that you needed entrepreneurs who were going to you know, come up with bold ideas and, and test them out and move them forward so that eventually it could be adopted at scale you know, via policy creation. But I, I didn't um, actually understand the policy side. And I felt like that was really important to understand as well. And, you know, right as I was transitioning out of Pencil Promise, we were still actually in our um, CEO search that I was co-leading with one of our board members the UN Special Envoy for Global Education, Gordon Brown, um, you know, the former UK Prime Minister, had this initiative called the Global Education Platform, which was his largest ed tech, you know, initiative. And they they wanted an entrepreneur to come in and kind of, you know, carry it from idea to execution. And so they asked me to come on and be the director. And, you know, I agreed to do it on a one year appointment. You know, I was pretty clear, look, I'm going to be starting something in, you know, about the next mm-hmm. year. But um, this would be really interesting for me to work on. Um, I also love to understand the policy side, which obviously they work on at the highest levels on, on the globe. And so in 2015, um, you know, I, I took that year and still continued to, to work with and support Pencil Promise, um, but also took that year to really kind of explore the, the policy side. And the more that I dove into it, the more that I talked to people about the state of higher education in the U.S., the more the idea for Mission U really started to crystallize and you know, by the beginning of, of 2016, the, the idea was was really tight, and uh, and I started to work on it at that point. And this is a perfect segue to talk about your your new startup, Mission U, which is out to kind of shake up the college experience for a select group of people. I want to hear about this bold idea and kind of how you came across it and how you're gonna how you're gonna pull it all off. Sure. So so Mission U is a one year college alternative for the 21st century, and it really aims to prepare you know, individuals for the jobs of today and tomorrow debt free, uh, which is really, really obviously important to, you know, me personally, as well as to millions of Americans that, you know, college uh, helps them more than it harms them and that it gives them, you know, a clear path to to a brighter future. And so, um, you know, the way that it's structured is, as I mentioned, it's a one year program about you know, 90 percent of the experience happens online. But these are not pre-recorded lectures, um, you know, pre-recorded lectures courses have you know less than a five percent completion rate. Um, they're really great in terms of content, but most young people need kind of the scaffolding of social support um, to really have transformative learning experiences. And so, you know, these are live virtual classrooms. You're in a cohort of 25 students. All of you live within 50 miles of the same city. That's um, part of the way the model works. And, uh, you know, you have these learnings online with uh, real industry practitioners working on real project based assignments. Um, and you come together, though, uh, frequently. So you have a three day in-person orientation and every month you have a meetup um, and then, you know, in-person graduation. But I think probably the most compelling part of it and the part that I'm most heavily advocating for in the space 
is that, you know, as institutions of higher education, that we align our uh, success with our student success and that we have greater accountability to outcomes. And so if you get into Mission U, there is no tuition at all. Uh, we are committed to investing in you for a full year. Uh, and at the end of that year, uh, once and only once you've attained a job paying you $50,000 or more, you contribute 15% of your income back to uh, Mission U. And that's the way that we're able to sustain the program, but it's a debt-free model. That's a very interesting model. To in a, It's a big bet on, on your part and their parts. What um and you said this is one year to train people right. for you know the the current workforce and the future of work. What sort of jobs are these, and what sort of skills um, does a student get? Right. So, um, great question. I mean, the way that the year is broken out is is you know the first quarter is uh, what we call foundation. It's eight hard skills. I mean, these are the things that I learned at Bain that, as I mentioned earlier, were really the foundation for me to go out and pursue you know almost any job and a career. These are things like. Um, you know, business writing, public speaking, Excel modeling, PowerPoint and keynote uh, presentation abilities, um, you know, project management, requirement gathering, really the essentials. Uh, the second quarter is heavily oriented around soft skills, uh, which every employer, you know, when you pull them, says they value most. Uh, things like collaborative teamwork abilities, critical thinking. And we also have a, a part that we call essential knowledge. And these are things that, you know, we think every young person should know. College almost never teaches. But, you know, how do you balance a checkbook? Uh, how do you pay your taxes? Um, and then the third quarter is where you get into your concentration, almost like your major. And at launch, uh, we're just launching with one, uh, and that is data analytics and business intelligence. You know, rapidly growing industry, um, almost every company that I've spoken to, and these aren't just data companies, you know, media companies have this tremendous lack of um, ability to identify high quality talent on data analytics and business intelligence. So that's what we're training for. Tell me about it. Yeah. So, so, um, so that's what we're training for. And then the fourth quarter, you're broken up into small teams. Um, this is the way that we essentially build internships into the, to the year. And you work on real clients, primarily nonprofits and social impact companies. Um, and you build a real public portfolio of work to prove to that employer that you're going to apply to to work for that you've actually done the thing that they need. Uh, we have graduation, but we don't think graduation should happen at the very end of the year. It doesn't make sense to us that, you know, kind of career services is an afterthought. Uh, we think it should be integrated deeply into the program. So graduation is actually six weeks before the program ends. And then you spend six weeks in what we call career launch. And that's where we support you. Uh, from everything through uh, interview preparation, interview support, and then all the way through to salary negotiation, which, you know, so few people in general in the workforce are, you know, taught how to how to execute on. But we think, you know, every young person should should be taught that early on. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Payment is essentially the handshake at the end of every online transaction. So don't make it awkward for your customer. Make it easy. Make it secure. Make it seamless. That's what Braintree means by rethink payments. It's not just a set of steps tacked onto the end of a customer's purchase. It's an opportunity to enhance their experience of your brand and increase the likelihood of repeat purchases. That's the Braintree philosophy. Braintree. Rethink Payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. The smart new way to buy travel is upside.com. You save money and get a free Amazon gift card every trip you buy. Use the code Forbes and you're guaranteed at least a 200 gift card your first time using Upside. 200 bucks. Save big on travel and get a big gift card. Upside.com. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. 
Here at the Forbes Interview Podcast, we know that creating great things sometimes comes down to having the right support system. That's why we're excited to have WordPress.com as a sponsor. We use it all the time for the blog posts at Forbes. Whether you're looking to create a personal blog, a business site, or both, you'll make a big impact when you build your website on WordPress.com. Even if you don't have experience building a website, WordPress can guide you through the process. They actually have hundreds of themes to get you started. Just pick a template and make it your own. You'll get built-in search engine optimization and social sharing. And if you have any questions, when you build your website on WordPress.com, you're part of a community with support 24-7 when you need it. Come see why 27% of all websites run on WordPress. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to WordPress.com slash Forbes to create your website and find the membership plan that's right for you. That's WordPress.com slash Forbes for 15% off a brand new website. WordPress.com slash Forbes. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. How do you go about kind of starting from scratch like this and go about creating such a, a curriculum? How, how do you decide what the length is? How do you decide what the courses are and what skills are important? Like how did you form this all up? You know, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, this, this idea has been in the works for, you know, well over two years now. And, you know, the truth is before starting uh, with recruiting students, our, you know, founding place was, was really to start with employers. Because, you know, our goal, again, is, is to really attract, you know, not the student who wants college to you know, come of age and not the student who wants to go to college um, because they want to pursue, you know, the kind of frat life and, you know, go to big football games. Those are not things that we provide. But, you know, those are also very, very expensive routes nowadays. Um, we're really targeting the career starter, uh, the student who use college as an avenue to a better life ahead and a great job. Um, there's a big research study that was done of Frenchmen and they said, you know, what is the reason you're going to college? And the number one answer, 91% said to get a better job. But most colleges don't view that as their responsibility at all. And so for that student, we felt like it was really important to begin with employers. Um, so, you know, for months and months and months now, we've just been speaking with employers, you know, more than 50 of them probably. I mean, almost every single day we're meeting with multiple to really understand where are their needs, where are their talent shortages, and how can we help support them? And so, you know, we've set up a, a series of what we call employer partners. These are companies that uh, have advised us in some capacity uh, on our curriculum, on the type of structure. Can you give me a few names? Sure. Um, these are companies like Facebook, Warby Parker, uh, Lyft, Casper, uh, Plated, Chegg, Harry's, uh, just to name a few. These are hot, sexy companies. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, this is the best of the best. This is the cream of the crop. Um, you know, and and in a lot of ways, I mean, you know, we view them as a as a harbinger of what's to come in the industry. I mean, if some of these companies are, you know, saying, look, data analytics is you know overwhelmingly where we have challenges, then our hunch is, you know, it's not just them that are that are having um, these talent shortages, but it's actually many many other companies that are going to follow their path or are already, you know in a similar space where they're seeing these same challenges too. And so, you know, we couldn't go out and pull every company in the United States. Uh, we started with what we saw as really the cream of the crop. 
And it was also, you know, pretty important for us to make sure that the types of companies where we wanted to help land our students um, were the types of companies that we were building curriculum almost around and for. So, you know, these companies, uh, as I mentioned, they advise us on uh, curriculum and then we give them preferred access to our top graduates and, you know, um, also help fill their talent pipeline by uh, encouraging every one of our students um, to apply. And, you know, not every single one, but uh, almost all of them have um, agreed that for uh, any of our students, um, that even if they don't have a bachelor's degree, they can still apply for these jobs. Are these companies, these partners you mentioned, are, have they been helping with, um, are they investing in you guys or are they helping offset some of the tuition fees uh, for, the, for the students? We didn't want to put the burden of responsibility on the employer um, and create any friction. So, you know, my, my co-founder, Mike Adams, previously co-founded the company Degreed, uh, which has gone on to, you know, tremendous success uh, in the education space. And then he ran outcomes for about three years at Hack Reactor, which you know, for those that aren't familiar, is is like the Harvard of the, of the boot camp space. I mean, after a three month program, ninety eight percent of people get jobs, and the average starting salary is one hundred four thousand um, dollars. Now, that's in software engineering and coding. That's not what we're focused on um, at this point. But you know, one of the things that you know Mike and I have talked a lot about is really the um, the importance of making sure that you know the the curriculum itself matches up to the the desire of um, of kind of not only the student but the employer, um, and and ultimately kind of servicing uh, that on ramp to to employment. I mean, I'm really interested in this model, this 15% of salary model. In some ways, you're basically almost giving loans yourselves. You know, you're making big bets on these people, almost like a like a bank loan officer betting on someone who's going to start wants to start a company. How do you vet this talent pool? Part of it is uh, that we incorporated from day one as a public benefit corporation. So you know, this is a an innovative structure that allows you to raise venture capital um, and enable returns for investors, but at the same time, ultimately be held accountable to your social mission as well as a financial mission. And so, you know, we went out, we raised a $3 million seed round from, you know, premier investors, companies like uh, investors like First Round Capital, which is our lead investor, you know, some of the top ed education investors in the country and about a dozen or more really prominent CEOs, um, some of which uh, are, are you know, from some of the companies that I just named. You can name drop here, Adam. It's okay. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, this, this includes people, you know, Neil uh, Blumenthal from Warby Parker, you know, Haley Barna, who's a co-founder at Birchbox, now a partner at, at First Round, um, you know, Dan Rosenswig, the CEO of, of Chegg, um, you know, Chip Posick, the, the CEO and co-founder of 2U. And, and you know, there's, there's probably a dozen more that I'm not even naming here. You know, people that um, are, are very well known and kind of prominent names. And so, you know, they all in in uh, in, in kind of my view have made a bet um, both on, you know, the, the future of higher education, because they understand since they're hiring so many people what the needs are and that college is not doing an apt job of preparing young people while at the same time it's leaving them with absolutely crushing and insurmountable debt. Um, and so. You know, the way that we're able to really finance this is by drawing on, on venture capital. And in some ways, we almost view it as these people are enabling scholarships. They're enabling us to take a bet on, you know, a subset of students that we think are incredibly qualified to enter the workforce um, and be amazing contributors, um, but might not, you know, uh, kind of have a desire to follow the traditional path. I mean, you and I probably know dozens of people who have been incredible, incredible, you know, kind of entrepreneurs or contributors to companies as executives and leaders who, you know, never thrived in, in an SAT setting. And so, you know, our admissions is totally different from any college. We don't look at SATs at all. 
because it's almost a direct proxy to well. Um, we don't look at GPA at all. Uh, we also don't require you to have graduated from high school. Um, so our admissions is a four-step process. Anybody can go to missionu.com right now and you just hit the apply button. Um, and I encourage you, it takes about two minutes to fill out the first step and you'll be underway. And, you know, what we really prioritize is, um, you know, kind of future potential in an individual rather than past test scores. And that enables us to, you know, really, one, have need-blind admission. So we don't, you know, prioritize from where you come from or kind of who your you know, family is or isn't. Um, but we also think that we're going to have an incredibly diverse set of students, which is something that we've heard from almost every employer that we've spoken to is, you know, diversity is really critical to us. And we're having trouble identifying quality talent that that meets those needs. And if you think about it and you kind of back out a second, it's because, you know, the main construct that you're um, validating someone through is whether they have a bachelor's degree or not. And when you look at the data, you know, the bachelor's degree tends to serve wealthy, um, you know, primarily Caucasian Americans. And we have so many other um, you know, people from various backgrounds that are ready to be incredible contributors to companies, but the bachelor's degree that, you know, takes four to, you know, increasingly six years um, and uh, leaves, you know, most people, I mean, most graduates have over $35,000 of debt, seven in 10 graduates. Um, and with interest rates, it's, it's going to put them in a really tough position. So uh, we're building this to, to really serve that future student. And, you know, as I was talking about before with, with Mike, one of our learnings was we want to create the least friction possible for an employer to hire one of our students. So, you know, we don't charge our employers really anything. Um, we just ask them to help advise us and then be willing to evaluate our talent because we think they'll outperform um, peer bachelor degree holders. You mentioned you don't you've kind of thrown the old tests out the window, SATs, GPA. So what do you look at? If I was applying online, like you mentioned, what, how are you going to test me to say, see if I'm going to the right uh, candidate for, for Mission U? You know, the second step of the admissions process uh, is, is what we call an admissions challenge. It happens entirely online. Um, you know, it's untimed and, uh, you know, there's, there's, you can use any non-human resource you want. So you can use the internet just like, you know, in a job setting. Um, but it's really uh, a way for us to identify how you solve problems. Um, you know, it requires real critical thinking abilities. So, you know, what we're looking for is soft skills, um, because those are things that if you come in from day one with, even if you're not a great test taker, even if you didn't have a great GPA, you know, you can be a great contributor to a company if you possess really fantastic soft skills. The, the third step um, of the admissions process is a group challenge in which you're given a prompt. And so it's you and three others. You're all in a live virtual classroom. Um, you enter and you're given this prompt. An example uh, that, that I'm you know, sharing with people is one that we've used thus far already just in our pilot, which is um, autonomous vehicles are coming to our society. Do you think that they will have a net positive, net negative or net neutral impact and why? And then you and three total strangers um, have 35 minutes to put together a presentation. And at the end of those 35 minutes, you present to our um, you know, staff member and this is all recorded. The staff member reviews the tapes, uh, assesses each student on you know, these soft skills. Uh, they self-assess and they peer assess. And all four could move on to the final round of individual interviews. Maybe none move on. It's, it's not competitive. But what we're really looking for is you know, those latent kind of abilities that often manifest through soft skills um, uh, from our students and you know, rarely show up on, on an SAT exam. And you said you're, you're admitting your first, or school starts this fall with 25 people? Right, 25 students. Uh, the first class will start this fall. You know, our, our headquarters is in San Francisco, so we're certainly interested in, in potentially having our first cohort be based in the Bay Area. That said, 
you know, we're opening up admissions nationally. Um, and so anybody that hears this or learns about Mission U can just go to the website. Uh, just It's just the letter U, so mission with the letter U at the end, .com, all one word. And, you know, if they hit that apply button, they can get started. One thing that, you know, I learned from Pencils of Promise was in order to really build a movement, you have to decentralize it and you have to give power to every individual to be a part of the story. And so one thing that we've decided to do is, uh, if anybody um, out there knows of a student, maybe you yourself aren't the perfect fit for this, but maybe your son or daughter or niece or nephew, you know, your friend or classmate, if you go to the website, you can just get a little referral code. And if you refer anybody who ends up joining Mission U, um, each of you will get $500. They'll get it towards um, their uh, kind of payback on the on the, that backside as a credit. Um, and we'll give you 500 bucks cash. So 25 people is, it's very, I mean, this sounds like a very compelling option for a big part of the population. 25 students is very small. It seems really selective. Uh, how many applications have you received or how many do you expect to receive? I mean, it sounds like this could be thousands of thousands of applications and just 25 people sounds you know, harder to get into than, uh, than an Ivy. At the recording, right, we haven't opened up admissions yet. You know, it'll fully open up on, on March 21st. And so, you know, we'll know, uh, like any, you know, venture, you, you have your kind of hopes and aspirations, but uh, you don't know for sure until you kind of put it out into society and culture and see what the feedback is. You know, our, our goal here um, is to, you know, certainly have a very selective program. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, we're not just taking any student. We're taking a very specific type of student. Um, and that specific type of student, you know, isn't somebody who necessarily thrives in an academic track, although I certainly think there's a lot of students who will. Um, but one thing that's interesting is, you know, we've run this pilot. Uh, we opened up, um, we've almost positioned it as an, we positioned it as an internship, but it was a way for us to really run a pilot um, because this was pre-launch. And so we said, you know, we're taking on interns at, at Mission U, but we ran them through our actual admissions process, the four-step process I was just describing. And it's, you know, like any startup, you, you, you want to kind of vet a lot of, you know, your kinks before you release it publicly. You know, they help us with um, uh, evaluating, kind of ironing out a lot of pieces of our curriculum. And we have this world-class team that, that's working with these students now. And what was incredible was, you know, we had well over 200 applicants for uh, 12 spots for uh, just this internship. And we turned down uh, almost every single Stanford and Berkeley student, um, not because of, you know, any bias there, but they just didn't really thrive on the evaluations and kind of metrics that we felt were important. And the real superstar uh, that we identified is a young woman who, you know, lives in Pennsylvania uh, with her sister, works a standard retail job because she chose not to go to college and um, just thought, you know, the cost structure of college wasn't right for her, especially at the age of 18 and said, you know, I, I don't want to put myself in crushing debt. But her soft skills, her ability to contribute to any team is you know, they're off the charts. And so she was the star that we identified rather than what you would traditionally think of as the Stanford or Berkeley kid. And, you know, I think it was super exciting for, for all of us that have this hypothesis that, you know, talent is dispersed you know, more widely across this country than just, you know, in the halls of elite colleges. And uh, this young woman, Stephanie, is, is certainly an example of that. And so, you know, um, I think that once we launch, if this resonates with a lot of people, you know, while this first cohort is, is only 25, we'll be launching cohorts quarterly. And uh, based on the demand, you know, we'll, we'll come to any geography where, you know, we think the, the talent really is and also, you know, ramp up over time. The path to scale here is adding new geographies. It's increasing frequency of, of cohorts to you know a monthly basis eventually, and adding new um, new disciplines, new concentrations. In terms of just kind of shifting gears here, to people out there who are looking to start something that may be a B Corp or maybe a, a, a more nonprofit 
What, what, what are your, what's your advice? What's Adam Braun's kind of playbook if you wanted to start a nonprofit either on the side or make a jump full time? Um, it's funny you use that phrase. I don't think you knew this, Steve, but I, you know, as I was leaving the day-to-day operations of Pencil Promise, I realized that I had so much institutional knowledge in my head about how to start and, and really grow a nonprofit from a, you know, a simple idea to, you know, eight figures of, of fundraising. Um, and there's no real resources out there for somebody to really understand how to build a nonprofit. Uh, no one kind of guides you through it. And I was getting all this follow up after people read my book, The Promise of a Pencil. They'd say, I'm so inspired. I want to start something or I have an organization. I want to take it to the next level. Can I grab coffee? And so I thought, you know, rather than, um, you know, kind of just leaving uh, and transitioning into something new, while obviously still supporting the organization and, and not sharing these ideas, why don't I just build an online course myself? And it was also a way for me to kind of dip my toe in understanding how online education works. And so uh, if anyone out there is actually interested in this, they can just go to uh, the URL, thenonprofitplaybook.com. And that's a course that I built. Um, literally, it's 10 months. By the way, I didn't, I, that wasn't a plug. I no, didn't know no, this. I, I didn't know. So I didn't know. No, I'm that. kidding. You know, and, and I intend to you know, share this. But I mean, there's literally hundreds of people and organizations good that, have, karma. that have taken this course. Um, and, you know, there's a private Facebook group for peer networking. I mean, it's been amazing to watch people. Um, really transform themselves and their organizations. And so, yeah, I mean, if anyone's interested, they can just go to the nonprofitplayboy.com and, uh, and sign up for this course. And real quick, you mentioned uh, your book, The Promise of a Pencil, and we, I think we spoke about this before, that you wrote the book and you, know, you wanted to do it, but you had no idea that it would kind of get the traction it did. Tell me a little bit how you, kind, how you started writing the book, but also um, kind of its you know, surprise success in, in your eyes. Uh, you know, I've been a writer since I was a kid. I mean, I've, I've kept... Um, you know, journals uh, since, since I was 16. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, my current journal literally right now um, where, you know, I, by hand I write uh, almost every week. And so, you know, I've always been a writer, uh, but I felt like I didn't have a, a complete story that was worth sharing until Pencils of Promise reached about its hundredth school. And that's when I thought, you know, something, this is, this is a story we're sharing. And especially because, you know, I was finding my, myself in front of all these incredible leaders of industries and they were sharing so many nuggets of knowledge that I wanted to share with others. Um, so I really wrote the book, uh, almost for like the college version of myself, um, as, as a, you know, a book that could be gifted from one person to another. And, you know, the way that I've gifted books like the alchemist or, uh, Shantaram or Siddhartha, um, I wanted this to be a book that could be gifted from one person to another. So, you know, I, I, I took a three-month sabbatical from Pencil Promise, um, wrote the book primarily in that period in 2013. It came out in 2014, and I think even my publisher, you know, didn't have massive expectations. You know, like any publisher, you hope it does well. And um, this is Simon & Schuster. And, you know, it sold out on Amazon in five days, and it went to number two on the New York Times bestseller list, spent, you know, weeks uh, on that list, and then eventually months in, in paperback as well. And, you know, now I think it's sold around 100,000 copies or so. Um, and, you know, I, it, it, at the end of the day, uh, one thing that I've learned is, you know, you can you can drive a big launch for a book, but the longevity, um, the actual overall sales of a book is really going to be based on the quality of the content. Um, what really matters is, you know, when people go on Amazon and they, they look at those reviews or they look at Goodreads, you know, is this book something that one person is going to put down and say, wow, I need to make sure somebody else reads this next? And, you know, fortunately, that that seems to have been the general response to the promise of a pencil. And um, as much as I'm, I'm eager to write a second book at some point in time, you know, the the pressure is something that I feel um, very real about that whenever I write that second book, it, it needs to really have a quality story to tell. And um, and it needs to kind of match the quality of the content that the promise of the pencil 
uh, possessed. Um, and it needs to be a story that that could hopefully help transform, you know, the way that somebody looked at the world in the way that, that this book uh, fortunately happened to do so. Yeah, that, the dreaded sophomore slump fear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But and obviously the content matters, but it, it seems like it caught on so much. There was definitely a community and I, I feel like a viral social push to it, too. Is that did that play a part in the uh, in success? And because content's great, but you had to, you know, when it's hard to get people to read anymore. Uh, how did that how did that work? Well, you know, I think part of it is that I probably accumulated about, you know, six, seven years of goodwill uh, with a lot of different people and that. You know, they they knew that my my heart was in the right place in building Pencil Promise. I think another thing that was certainly helpful was I committed every dollar of my proceeds as an author, including my entire advance, to give that I would personally give that to Pencils of Promise and all you know royalties going forward. So every you know six months I get a pretty nice check and then I immediately donate that into the organization. And so, you know, for some people, I think they saw it also as, you know, a philanthropic act that if they bought a copy of a book, they were also, you know, helping support the education of a child. And, you know, when I tapped into uh, all these different folks that I had met across the years and said, look, you know, this book is coming out. It tells the story of our organization, as well as, you know, lessons learned on life about success and significance. And, you know, every you know, proceed that, that I would receive is going back into supporting these kids. Can you please share this? Um, it was amazing to see uh, how excited and how willing people were to say yes. And, you know, it seemed like for that week, uh, it was front and center for every single person's social media feed. And that drove, you know, really great adoption um, in ways that that I think I, I hoped would occur, but, um, you know, could could have never actually foreseen until it, it fully launched. And, you know, it's super gratifying now, you know, you walk through an airport and you know, you see a copy of your book and someone picking it up and reading it or, you know, seeing it out in the wild is, is always really fun. But now you have two young kids. So for your second book, you can only donate half the royalties and you got to keep the rest for for college. Yeah. Now now I got newborn twins and, and babies to feed. Although, you know, to your point, um, you know, I think one of the first things that enters your mind when you have kids is, holy crap, how am I going to pay for college? And in a lot of ways, you know, there's this kind of renewed motivation or, or you know, kind of differentiated motivation for me now in thinking about building Mission U, which is you know, as any parent knows, your your children are never the same. And especially when you have fraternal boy and girl twins like we have um, at three months old, they're already so, so different. And, you know, I, I, I feel a responsibility to make sure that if, you know, one of them wants to go the traditional route and they can get into a great college and the return on investment is there. Sure. You know, I'll encourage them. But if the other one is, you know, savvy enough to say, hey, this doesn't make sense. I mean, you guys at Forbes, this is actually where I saw the article. Um, somebody, you know, wrote a piece and they projected out the cost based on current trends of one year of a private institution uh, in college is going to be $130,000 by the year 2030. And and that's the decade that my kids will be going to school. And, you know, I want to have other alternatives in place. And that's that's really part of why I'm building Mission U at this point is so that, you know, if, if one of my kids doesn't want to take that traditional path, um, that they have another choice. Well, worst, worst case scenario, they can always become journalists. So don't worry about that. <laughs> then, then they're going to you. <laughs> That's right. Come right to me. Um, well, Adam, this is great. You gave us so much time. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you, Steve. That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed Unscripted. 
Unscripted, yeah, let's go with that. A marriage made in heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests, David Copperfield, Neil LaBute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain Wilson, the first guest. You are no, the very first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. Stephen Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.